Welcome to the Equal Parts Podcast, brought to you by Care at Work. Being a working parent is hard. And if you have a high schooler who's navigating the college application process right now, you know how stressful it can be for them and for you. My guest today is here to answer some of your most pressing questions. Vinay Bascara is the co-founder of CollegeVine, an online platform that offers free and personalized college guidance to high schoolers and their parents. A little disclaimer here, CARE has just created a partnership with CollegeVine to make it accessible to our clients and their employees. Vinay's advice is priceless. He tells us how the college admissions process has changed since the pandemic, and he shares tips for parents and students on everything from securing financial aid to writing the perfect essay and so much more. Have a listen. Vinay, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. You're the co-founder of a company called CollegeVine. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do and how you help students and their families throughout the college admissions process? Yeah. So you can really think of CollegeVine as a one-stop shop for helping you with pretty much everything in the college admissions process. Uh, That's everything from helping you find the schools that are going to be right for you, understand what your chances of admission are by entering into our admissions calculator, understanding what you're going to pay for college, uh, finding a community of other students and families that are going through the admissions process through our communities and through our forums, getting guidance uh, via our live streams and our blog. Um, There's just tools to help you with every single part of the admissions process. Um, And it's all entirely free for families. Even though it's summer, there are a lot of teenagers who are thinking about the fall and college applications, and parents are probably on edge as well thinking about this process as it can be very, very overwhelming. How can parents help their high schooler to really make this process as smooth and stress-free as possible? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say there's, there's really three key areas that, that a parent can be helpful in. The first is in helping their student find the kinds of resources and, and tools that they need to succeed. Sometimes, you know, if a student is in the middle of studying for an exam or they're in the summer and they're trying to hang out with their friends, as a parent, you can do some of that behind the scenes legwork to identify, hey, here's some tools, here's some resources, here's some things we need to do so that that way your kid doesn't have to go through that first layer of work. Ultimately, you still want them to be driving or at least participating in their college search, but you can kind of do some of that legwork for them, especially if they're in like a busy period or they're not as oriented towards college initially. Really think through what you are able to afford, what you're able to do financially, and have that statement in your head clearly, but make sure you communicate that to your kid. One of the biggest areas of butting heads that we see between parents and students is the student will go off to the races. They'll say, you know, I want to go to this school and this school and do this and do that. And then mom and dad look at that and either they have to turn around and say, no, you can't do that because we can't afford it. Or they feel guilted into taking out really, really bad student loans at the parent level or even, you know, having their kid do that. So I think it's really, really important to be transparent about the financial constraints if those exist. Now, if you're lucky enough that those don't exist or, you know, your kid is interested in schools that are going to be affordable for you because they're in-state or they're public universities, that's great. But you want to actually be transparent about that conversation. You know, if it's 
possible and you're comfortable doing it, even give them a little bit of insight into like your household income and into the amount of money you have saved for college. And the reason that's valuable is that when they go to tools like CollegeVine or to university websites, that information can really help them understand their own cost limitations so that you don't have to come in over the top and do all of that. And I think the third thing is just as parents, remembering that this is your, your kid's life journey and you should be there as an advisor and you should be there as a guide and you should have points of view on that journey. But ultimately, you do need to let them make their own decisions and, and kind of find the right school for them and the right educational journey for them. And sometimes, you know, I think as parents, you want to protect your kid, you want to take them, you know, almost cocoon them throughout their life. But at some point, you kind of have to let them go a little bit. And this is one of those first periods where that really makes a lot of sense to do. Speaking of that, just before we started recording, our producer, Christy, told me a story about how her dad made her start looking at colleges when she was in eighth grade. She said she's still haunted by it to this day. And I think it brings up an interesting question that's probably on the minds of a lot of parents out there. And that is, when is the right time to start encouraging your children to think about college? And what can we do to guide and support them to help them figure out what they want and don't want in a school? There's a different answer depending on who you are, right? So if your kid is someone who's like a really, really long-term planner, who's always thinking ahead, who's always two steps ahead, there's not as much danger in getting them involved in the college search process as early as like a sophomore year. The second half of 10th grade at that point, they'll have had two years of high school. They'll have a sense of what their grades are like, what they like, what they don't like. That might be the earliest, I would say. Uh, I certainly would never probably have my kids start looking at colleges in eighth grade because you're just going to change so much between when you're 13 years old and when you're 17. For most folks, I would say the first half of junior year is the right time to be looking at colleges. You know, spend the first half of junior year doing your research, do your visits in the second half of junior year, and then apply in your senior year. That's, that's kind of a typical path, and there's nothing wrong with that path. And then as far as helping students figure out what they do and don't want, in a college campus, I think visiting plays a huge factor, but I also think talking to current students from that campus and just doing your research and spending a little bit of time thinking through what that means, right? What does it mean if a school has big classes? Like think back to your own classes and think about, okay, do I like how big my classes are or don't? If you're in a high school with, you know, 25 students per class and you already feel like that class is like difficult to deal with, then you probably are going to want a really small school. On the other hand, if you don't mind the 25 students, then you might be open to something different. So I think the biggest thing with figuring out what you do and don't care about, there's obviously resources you can use. College Vine is one of those, visiting the school, the campus websites, YouTube videos, forums, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it often comes down to just thinking about it and actually just thinking through what you care about. I love that College Vine enables students to talk to students who are currently at a specific school or are alumni of specific school and even talk to people in admissions at those schools. I think that's just an absolutely fantastic resource to have. And by the way, I will tell Christy to let her dad know that he pressured her a little too early on that one. (laughs) As I mentioned, when I was applying to college way back when, Everyone took the SAT and the ACT, and it was a painful part, for me at least, of the application process. And of course, you also had to submit your GPA, your essays, your teacher recommendations, and so on and so forth. But I'm hearing now that standardized tests are becoming less and less important, especially since COVID came into our lives. Is that true? Do they matter anymore? Yeah. So the short answer is standardized tests do still matter, but they matter less than they used to. 
basically the background here is that even before COVID-19, a bunch of colleges were switching to what are called test optional policies. And the theory behind that is that there's a lot of students for whom standardized tests are a useful judge because they're a standardized test that's taken by a lot of students in the country. But for some students, there's an argument that standardized tests are maybe not the best tool for judging certain students' academic abilities. And so actually, even before the pandemic, a lot of schools had started to adopt these sort of so-called test optional policies, which says you can submit a test score if you have one, but you don't have to submit a test score to apply to the school. The pandemic obviously accelerated that movement and made basically every college in the country switch to a test optional policy because of how testing got disrupted by the pandemic. Now that testing has resumed, a lot of colleges are still continuing with those test optional policies. And the sort of way to think about that is that if you apply without a test, the rest of your application has to be really, really solid, right? So getting rid of the test means that you're getting rid of a portion of your profile. If you're someone who has a really awesome GPA, you have a really awesome you know, resume in terms of the kinds of things that you did and the things that you're interested in, you have wonderful glowing re- recommendation letters, and then your testing is not as good, that's an argument for applying test optional. Now, on the other hand, if some of those other areas are a little bit weaker, right, or maybe you're not a great writer, so you don't think you'll have great essays, then that's where having a good standardized test score will still help you stand out. It's not going to be 2020 where, because of the pandemic, test scores were really a secondary factor. Test scores are still a valuable thing to have on your profile in certain circumstances. And so my recommendation generally to families is unless you're someone who gets a lot of anxiety or your actual like emotional well-being is impacted substantially by testing, I would just take the test. I would prepare for the test. I'd still you know, treat it as important. And then depending on your score, you can always have the option to submit it to some of your colleges, submit it to all of your colleges, or submit it to none of your colleges. The last thing I'll say is some of this also depends on who's around you. So if you're in a suburban upper middle class or middle class town where 70, 80% of your high school graduating class is going to go to college, chances are a lot of the other students in your high school are going to be taking the test. And so just naturally, colleges do compare students from local regions, right? That's, that's part of how they approach the admissions process. And so if you're from one of those regions, chances are you're not having a test is going to make you stand out more in a negative way than if you come from a different background. So it also depends on, on kind of who you are and what the students around you are doing. That's great advice. Really, really helpful. Can you share what else parents and students need to know about how COVID may have shifted the college admissions process? A big thing, and it's actually a little bit of a trap, is that for the last couple of years, um, so for last year and for this cycle and presumably for the next cycle, there's going to be a question on the Common App about how COVID impacted your life. And that question is actually a little bit of a tricky one because obviously COVID impacted every single person's life, but there are radical differences in just how that happened. So if you're someone where, for example, you lost a close family member or you had a parent fall sick for an extended period of time or your parents lost their job or had suffered some sort of economic loss due to COVID. That's really what that question on the application is designed for. But for a lot of students where luckily, thanks to good luck and interventions from the U.S. government and a whole host of other factors, you know, the majority of American families didn't necessarily suffer material either health or financial losses from COVID. And so for a lot of folks, right, or a lot of kids last year, the temptation was to write the story about how COVID made me sit at home and it made me feel depressed and sad. And to be clear, I think all of those are genuinely true feelings and true emotions. But at the same time, A, that's just a shared experience that existed across every single student in the country. And B, it's just an order of magnitude less bad than the people who suffered the loss of a family member or a friend or 
financial harm. And so I think a trap that a lot of kids fell into last year that you want to really avoid this year is feeling like, oh, I have to respond to this question, which was optional, quote unquote, on the Common App. And then they end up writing something that makes them almost look privileged, if that makes sense, by virtue of the impact that COVID had on them versus on some other folks. Um, so I think that's a big one. The other thing to keep in mind is that universities are a lot more flexible with timelines and with deadlines. Insofar as things seem to be returning to normal in the U.S., we'll see how much of that carries over. That's a really big thing that was beneficial to families last year that I don't know how much it will continue this year in terms of like extending deposit deadlines and you know notification deadlines, stuff like that. Another sort of piece that is not directly COVID-related but has definitely changed and shifted admissions is the importance of racial justice. And really there, there's almost like two parallel threats, right? The first is obviously is that if you have done work to support racial justice and you can write about it thoughtfully, that obviously is, is a plus to your application. But a bigger slice for a lot of folks is if you're not someone who has done maybe that direct work in terms of racial justice, just combing through your writing a little bit and making sure that your essays and your application don't come off in the other direction in terms of sort of highlighting your privilege or speaking from a place of privilege. The importance of that has gotten more salient to admissions officers and to colleges in the wake of the pandemic, but also in the wake of obviously the tragedy of what happened to George Floyd and and many others last year. And a lot of students took a gap year last year and they're applying to college for the first time. How should they think about framing up their gap year in their admissions process now? Do you think it'll help them or hurt them or does it just really depend on what they did during that year? Even last year, because of test optional admissions, things got way more competitive at top colleges and really at at a lot of selective colleges. So the big thing to keep in mind is that they're they're just going to be in a much more competitive environment. So every piece of their application is going to have to be that much stronger. Now, by definition, your grades are something you can't really control once you've graduated and taken a gap year. So it's going to really come down to writing really strong essays, to framing their resume in a really good way, and to you know approaching every part of the application process with just that extra bit of care. I think also as students who took gap years, one thing to keep in mind is that unlike in traditional years, right, they weren't probably necessarily able to like go spend some time working somewhere or, or go on a mission trip or something like that. If they can show that they were productive during their gap year, that's going to be a plus. Now, it doesn't mean that if you weren't able to do that, it's going to be a minus because I think colleges do realize and emphasize the fact that the world was shut down for large swaths of last year. But if you were able to find something creative and productive to do from home, that is going to be a boost for you. You touched on this earlier. Parents don't tend to talk to their kids about finances when it comes to college, and it's one of their biggest worries. The costs just keep going up. And applying for grants and scholarships and financial aid is such a huge and important part of this process. Can you talk about what that financial aid landscape really looks like right now and how parents and students can go about applying for federal aid and resources they can check out to apply for grants and scholarships? The myth of scholarships and financial aid is that federal money and these like external scholarships are going to get you there. Whereas in reality, in most of these cases, the money that's going to be most important relative to say a $6,000 price point or an $80,000 price point or whatever is going to be money that the college themselves gives you in the form of merit scholarships or financial aid. So my biggest thing with, you know, applying for scholarships and applying for grants is, yes, absolutely, you want to fill out your financial aid forms, right? But the Pell Grant is capped at $6,600 a year or $6,900 a year or some, some number in that range. There's a pretty big gap between that and Harvard's tuition of sixty grand. Yet 
students who make under $60,000 a year in their family's household income go to Harvard for free. That's because Harvard is providing the vast majority of that money. And this is true at pretty much every college in the United States. The vast majority of aid that you're going to get from universities is going to come, like get to, to attend university, sorry, is going to come from universities themselves. And so people ask me, okay, what, what's, what are your biggest tips? Obviously fill out your financial aid forms. But my biggest sort of suggestion is instead of trying to apply for a bunch of scholarships that are, you know, given out by the local Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Union or whatever, focus on applying to more and different colleges, right? Applying to more colleges is valuable because, you know, you just, you never know how different colleges are going to react to your application. One college and one admissions officer on one day might give you money, whereas another college and another admissions officer on another day might not. So just you're increasing your, your chances in a process that does have some randomness. Beyond that, when you apply to more schools, you're also then able to turn around and negotiate with colleges for a better aid package. This is actually something a lot of families don't know, but you can actually work with colleges based on, hey, I got you know this much money from this school. Is there any way you can match that or, or close some of that gap? So the more colleges you apply to, the more likely you are to have multiple financial aid offers, which you can use as leverage in your negotiation. The other thing is in terms of applying to different schools, right? In general, you're more likely to receive aid money from schools where you are overqualified. What I mean by that is your application and your profile are much stronger than that of the typical accepted student. So if you're someone who has a really strong, say, test score and GPA, and you apply to a school where the typical student is weaker on both of those metrics, then you're more likely to receive money. Now, the caveat there is you, you do have to be picking schools that you'd be comfortable attending. So like, you don't want to necessarily just apply to all 800 schools in the country or something like that, because there's no upside to that in that you wouldn't attend most of these schools. But if you can find some lower ranked or some schools that have a, a weaker admissions profile that have other factors that you really like, then that can be a super powerful way to walk out of the process with more money. And I think in general, the biggest mistakes that families make in this process is they don't understand that college money is the majority of financial aid money in this country if you exclude student loans. That's great advice, Vinay. This has been such a helpful and insightful conversation. Thank you so much for making the college admissions process more accessible and approachable and helpful for people. Yeah, absolutely. It's been my pleasure. And uh, there's advice like this and much, much more uh, that you can find at uh, collegevine.com. You know, we have uh, live streams that where you can actually come in and ask questions to an expert just like me, sometimes even me. Um, so definitely check that out if you're looking for some help with the admissions process. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Equal Parts. See you next time. Wait, before you go, I just want to tell you a little bit about Care at Work by Care.com. They work with some of the world's largest companies to offer family care benefits to their employees. If you're one of the lucky ones who already has care benefits at work, use them. If you don't, ask for them. It's a real lifesaver. To learn more, visit care.com slash care at work. Again, that's care.com slash care at work work.